Welcome to the Real Weird Podcast, Episode Three: Butterflies and Scorpions. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. This is Episode Three officially of the Real Weird Podcast. So I've got a nice little double feature for you all today. We are going to be taking a little trip to Italy to talk about one of my favorite film subgenres, giallo. That is G-I-A-L-L-O for anyone that wants to look it up on their own. So before we begin about talking about our two movies today, I want to discuss what a giallo is. Uh, giallo is just the Italian word for yellow. If you've ever heard of Pulp Fiction, not the movie, but the style, you know, uh, about how that came from those cheapo detective novels of the day being printed on pulp paper, which had a very coarse texture. This is the Italian version of that, essentially. Uh, Giallo, before such movies were made, were cheap paperbacks with bright yellow spines and covers, although that was one uh, admittedly very successful publishing company that did that. Now, some of these were uh, Italian translations of, like, Agatha Christie or Edgar Wallace, some of the big-named uh, mystery writers of the time. But they ended up but they ended up having a reputation for being very, very lurid and sensationalist, and for the time at least, having very explicit subject matter. They are primarily crime thrillers and murder mysteries, and the movies these days, or, well, okay, when I say these days, I mean, you know, back in the 70s when these things were, you know, all the rage. But they're primarily known for having horror elements in addition to the murder mysteries, uh, very stylized kill scenes in terms of lighting and camera work, uh, very, very jarring music. There are big fans of counterpoints where they'll play music where the mood generally doesn't fit the, you know, what's going on on the screen. Um, very liberal amounts of blood for the time period. And I will say that the blood is sometimes a little too bright to be, believable, especially since these movies were still using a uh, Technicolor for a while, which I think actually helps because, you know, none of it, none of it looks like strictly natural in terms of the lighting. Uh, the genre is also notable for aesthetics generally in terms of its set design. It's all, uh, it's all very seventies in terms of like the home decor and personal fashion. There are exceptions obviously, but as I mentioned before, the music is also a big part of that too. It's generally this strange sort of groovy, jazzy lounge music, and occasionally there's some uh, classical influences, like we'll be talking about with one of the movies today. Since some jarring discordant sound, uh, I did particularly like this um, quote from film critic Ann Bilson. Uh, Jalo soundtracks have a, quote, sort of soothing lyricism, that belies the fact that it's actually accompanying, say, a slow-motion decapitation. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I agree. I have a soft spot for these older Italian movies with very low budget. Um, I think, I mean, low by Hollywood standards especially. But I think uh, Ernesto Gastaldi, the screenwriter for one of these movies, he said that the budget today, or at least when that interview was conducted, would be about 2 billion lira, which is like 1.5 to 2 million US dollars. That's the best conversion I could get for it. Uh, I will say that no matter how bad some of these like schlocky Italian horror movies get, 
I always have a soft spot because the soundtracks are always wonderful. I actually have a old high school friend who's uh, getting into uh, being a rap mu- a rapper, and I've actually suggested to him that if he ever wants to, you know, you know, get some good beats to go with his music, um, he could probably easily sample any of the soundtracks to get some. But you know, just go look at go look at some of them for yourself. Uh, so yeah, those are the general characteristics of a giallo. Uh, at least as far as the filmmaking style goes. We'll get to some of the more creative stuff right now. So general themes of the genre include some aspects that might be familiar to any fans of Hitchcock or to the later, you know, slasher subgenre here in the U.S. There's a general focus on the suspense and dread. The protagonist is usually some outsider who gets dragged into a situation by total accident a lot of times. Uh, there's kind of a running joke that it's usually some kind of creative profession. Um, the main character in one of them that we're going to be talking about today, Giorgio, he's actually a piano player. The, one of the later ones, for example, though, that we will probably discuss sometime down the road is called Tenebrae. And the protagonist is an American author who comes to Rome to do a book signing, and he's, you know, uh, continually harassed by some unknown figure, uh, Deep Red, where, again, in this case, a British pianist in Rome witnesses a murder through an apartment window and gets stalked by the killer. The prototypical killer in a Jalo movie is basically the uh, masked killer in Blood and Black Lace. There is some kind of disguise, whether it's a mask or sunglasses, or in the case of that movie, it's like, um, you know, a stocking pulled over the head. Uh, usually dressed in all black, black gloves. Again, fans of slashers might recognize the occasional POV shots for the killer. Uh, aside from this, there's some common themes of voyeurism. The killer, or in some cases killers, are usually votive, motivated by past trauma, usually of a sexual nature. Uh, sometimes the protagonist, especially in the cases of the female protagonist, is also kind of psychologically unstable. And in those cases, sometimes the events are occasionally presented in such a way that it either helps to like gin up the sense of isolation or make it in such a way where it kind of feels like you're meant to question the reliability of events. Um, uh, Bloodstained Butterfly, which is one of the movies we're talking about, actually features as one of its only few misdirections is that there's a character testifying in court and what we get is a lying flashback which isn't something that was very common for like before the 70s honestly i remember reading and listening in one of the commentary tracks actually that like hitchcock did that back in the 50s with stage fright and so many critics got mad at him for it it's like you can't do that you can't fucking do that no but yeah it worked pretty well in that particular movie so but we'll get to uh Bloodstained Butterfly. I just got a few more thoughts about the genre itself right now. Uh, that's the background of the genre itself, really. And the start of Jalo as a film genre is usually seen as um, Mario Bava and his movie The Girl Who Knew Too Much. Again, that's a Hitchcock reference. The Man Who Knew Too Much. Um, he did one version in the 30s in the UK, and then he actually remade it in the U.S. with a different cast, including James Stewart. 
so the man, so the girl who knew too much came out in 1963, and he made another great one, the aforementioned Blood and Black Lace, about a year later. That's that's probably one of my favorite ones. Uh, but the Jalo really took off in 1971 with another one of my favorite directors is Dario Argento. He's probably one of the more famous, most famous of the Jalo directors, actually. But in the span of one year, he made the so-called Animal Trilogy. Now that is Bird with a Crystal Plumage, The Cat of Nine Tails, and Fourth Lives in Grey Velvet. All movies I have DVDs for, yes. And they were so well received. I mean, I think some of these were actually... I think the two that we're going to be talking about today were actually made um, but after Crystal Plumage was put out, but before Cat of Nine Tails was. But it spawned a wave of, you know, animal in the title, Jalo knockoff movies, uh, sometimes ones that had very little uh, relevance to the actual plot. Uh, we've got Don't Torture a Duckling, A Lizard in a Woman's Skin, The Black Belly of the Tarantula, and a personal favorite of mine in terms of like guilty pleasure level is the iguana with the tongue of fire. Uh, so yeah, Jalos are some of my, or Jali, or Jali, I think is the like proper plural for that. I don't know. Any Italian listeners feel free to correct me, but that's uh, it. Yeah. It's one of my favorite subgenres. I think even Eli Roth has said that like, um, what was it? Torso by Sergio Martino was one of the big influences for his movie Hostel. But yeah, I'm going to give, I'm going to give three provisos that may turn some people off when looking into Jolly. So first, these two are exceptions, but a lot of them, the style can be disorienting and sometimes the story's logic breaks down a little bit in terms of, well, they, sometimes the writers, um, get a little, they cheat a little bit and they try to have shock value that makes up for the lack of cohesion in the story. So that's one thing. Two is that, as I mentioned, voyeurism and themes of like sexual trauma are very common. Now, in a lot of cases, it's not very explicitly shown. And I would argue that one of the movies today, it's very, very restrained. Um, it's actually kind of condemning that sort of attitude against women. And in the other one, the credit to Gasaldi's writing, especially for an Italian movie in the 70s, is that uh, the main heroine in that particular movie is like not helpless. She's a character in her own right. She's actually competent and intelligent. But... There are a lot of scenes where, again, if you're a fan of a slasher movie, you probably expect this. There's a lot of women that are just there to be pretty, get naked, and then get killed off. So uh, there's not like full-on rape scenes in most of the ones I've seen, but it's heavily referenced. So, you know, tread with caution. And then I think this is the big one, and I've had kind of some uh, fun discussions with my coworkers about this because they get surprised at it too. A fair amount of these Jolly were actually, well, I suppose I should say that Italian movies for the longest time as a way to keep production costs down and speed up the process by which they were made, they were shot completely without sound, and then they were dubbed over later into uh, English or Italian or whatever language. 
And they would, and part of the reason they did this was that to appeal to foreign markets, they would bring in foreign actors. Um, you know, in the uh, case of the Scorpion's Tale, we have an Argentine actor and a Spanish actor, for example. Uh, the main, our female lead, Anita Sternberg, is actually Swedish. In uh, Bloodstained Butterfly, we've got three, actually, well, technically two West German actors and an Austrian. So part of the reason they would do that, again, is to bring in uh, attention from foreign markets and to sometimes create a language barrier. So the directors were like, don't worry about that. You just speak your native language on set, we'll speak ours, and then we'll just dub everything later. So... Yeah, some of the performances can feel a little wooden, a little stiff, because nothing, because you can kind of tell, even in the best cases, that what they're saying on screen is not what you're really hearing in the audio. And, <laughs> you know, it's funny, I work in a hotel, so I have, like, a lot of um, people of uh, people that came from places outside my native country, the U.S., uh, working in the kitchen with me. And I said to our previous chef one day, it's like, okay, so yeah, imagine like all of us are speaking English. Those two are speaking Georgian. He's speaking Spanish. She's speaking Chinese. And they're all, and we're all just trusting each other that we are in fact saying our lines. So yeah, those are the provisos. I just wanted to get all those out of the way because I feel like they might be a bit of a hurdle for some people trying to get into uh, this particular subgenre. But if you can, uh, just saying it's a really wonderful time and a lot of them, um, you know, whether it's because, <laughs> whether it's because the story is well written or just because you're like, what the fuck is going on? They do have like a good bit of rewatch value. The things do, you are rewarded if you go back and watch it again. And I feel like that's a really good thing for any movie. All right. So first up today in our double feature, we have the bloodstained butterfly. Directed by Duccio Tassari. And this is a notable entry in the genre because it's very, in a good way, atypical for the genre. It's hybridized. There's a giallo aspect of it, but about a quarter of the total runtime is like a courtroom drama. So, just to give a brief synopsis, it's uh, Bergamo, I think is the name of the town. It's in northern Italy. It's up around Milan. And there's this college girl who's a French exchange student named Françoise Pigot. She's found murdered in a public park during a rainstorm, and the evidence seems to point to a local TV anchor named Alessandro Marchi. Now, his lawyer puts up a weak defense. Marchi is incarcerated, and that's partially because Marchi's wife is having an affair with the lawyer, Giulio, who is defending him. But the police and... A couple of friends of the victim begin to suspect the wrong man was in prison because, what do you know, a couple of murders happen after he's incarcerated. So that's a good synopsis of the first aspect of the movie. I wouldn't really consider it a spoiler because, frankly, for a mystery movie, that whole sequence would make it way too obvious. Uh, <laughs> I kind of joked with a friend of mine about this when I was talking about Scream 5. They make it so obvious that he's the killer that it's obviously that he's obviously not. Uh, it's a good way to put it, frankly. And also, you'll get the, you'll get that synopsis if you just go on IMDb or Wikipedia. 
But yeah, it lacks a lot of the visual campiness of a lot of other Jali. And it's interesting because it seems to be looking more towards like Hitchcock for inspiration. Um, before we get the big ending twist that, you know, ties everything together, this kind of feels like, it almost kind of feels like a remake, an Italian remake of The Wrong Man by Hitchcock with Henry Fonda. And there's like just enough, just enough information fed to you that you can kind of piece things together on your own, but not enough to make it, you know, blatantly obvious and you're just waiting for the movie to end at that point, which is a good medium spot to hit. It, it's fitting that it's a courtroom drama because we get to piece things together just like the jury would. But our two main characters are Marky's daughter, Sarah, and her friend, Giorgio. They're both friends of the victim. And... Yeah, now with all the provisos I gave before, I think all the performances were great. Uh, I was going to say set design, but I, given the budget that a lot of these Jali had, I don't think they were like sets for the most part. I think they just filmed in whatever locations were available. Because especially that courtroom, I think they didn't have the budget to make a set, so they just asked the court, hey, can we shoot here on a day where you don't have any business? Uh I don't really know much else to say about the editing style and the camera work because it is perfectly weird, as I'd put it. It's just enough to give a bizarre, disorienting feeling, but not so much that it detracts from the meat of the film. It doesn't distract eh, distract from the story. It doesn't get so stylized that it annoys the viewer, basically. Uh, Tassari was really good at using montages, when the witnesses in the courtroom are giving testimony. And it's helpful because otherwise we would just be seeing these, first off, long, drawn-out sequences, but we'd also be seeing them multiple times. So it's helpful to keep them condensed so that when we do revisit them, we don't have to uh, sit through them in their full length again. Uh yeah, I also know that, you know, the filmmakers can't control the weather, but there is the one scene where it's still kind of drizzling out um, when they're investigating uh, Pigo's body. And you can kind of just tell from the way everything's falling that it's basically just a sprinkler. But again, none of it looks too stylized or too, um, strictly speaking, natural. So, yeah, there's there's some flaws in the filmmaking itself, but the narrative's solid enough despite a little bit of a pacing issue. I will not spoil the twist for obvious reasons, because frankly I think this is one of the best ones I've seen in a long time. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm just going to say this, I've, especially because, just to use this as an example, uh, the 2018 Aquaman, I heard complaints about it that was predictable. I say, so what? It's still entertaining. I, I'd rather, honestly, have a movie that's predictable but still entertaining versus one that has a twist that is just there for shock value. One that makes the story fall apart if you think about it too long or doesn't really affect anything. So, yeah. This one is both what I'd ever refer to as a trajectory twist and a retroactive one. It changes the way the story goes and it makes you look at the events up to this point in a different light. There are a couple moments that just feel completely contrived and kind of nag the audience sort of 
at a first viewing, but they make sense when you see the twist. And yeah, just to give some uh, a few shout-outs to some of the people who were in this film, as I said, this uh, movie was partially produced with the help of some financiers from West Germany. Our lead is Helmut Berger, who was an Austrian actor who uh, was something of a sex symbol for the time, and he was also the uh, boyfriend of the Italian director, Lucchino Visconti. Uh, Berger was actually in a few of Visconti's films, including The Damned and Ludwig. Um, he was also in, what was it, uh, Dorian Gray by Massimo Dallamano, who is also another director who's dipped his foot into giallo. Uh, during the trial scenes, the defense attorney who's having the affair with Alessandro's wife is played by Gunther Stoll. He was in another of Dalamano's films, What Have You Done to Solange? And the prosecutor is played wonderfully by Wolfgang Price, who was in Luigi Bazzoni's The Fifth Chord. So there's a lot of, uh, <laughs> there's a lot of uh, I wouldn't say veterans of Jalo, but there's definitely a few in there. And I'll actually reference Berger again at the end of this episode because he's kind of a microcosm of what I would say about Jalo, to be honest. And to give some background on Tassari himself, who I just want to mention this right up front, he actually has a, a cameo role in the movie. Um, he's one of the eyewitnesses at the trial. If you watch the movie, just be on the lookout for an... I wouldn't say old, but generally like mid-30s men with a gray suit and a red carnation on it. Uh, that's him. And actually, the little girl that witnesses the murder at the very beginning of the movie is his daughter, Federica. And the lady playing the mistress of Marky, as we find out later in the movie, um, is actually his wife, Loretta De Luca. Uh, Tassari himself actually did some unscripted writing work, allegedly, on Fistful of Dollars, although the extent of that is unknown. He was mostly known for uh, documentaries, Peplum, which is also sometimes called Sword and Sandal, uh, and the Spaghetti Westerns. He was also in what it were... He was also known for doing Poliziotecca movies, which were... I guess basically the best way I could describe it is think of either Dirty Harry or The French Connection if they were made in Italy. They were these um, socially conscious police dramas, as they were put in one of the commentator tracks that I saw. And he kind of broke in to the giallo genre by doing something that was a hybrid of that and the giallo. Oh, sorry, a hybrid of the giallo and the poliziotecca. It's called A Death Occurred Last Night. Uh, as far as some of the people that worked on here, there was the director of photography, uh, Carlini. Uh, he also worked with Antonio Margariti on Seven Deaths in the Cat's Eye. And Clarici, who is the uh, screenwriter for this. And fun little Easter egg, the surname of the mistress character is also Clarici. But... I like the way that Kim Newman put it on the commentary track. He said, <laughs> he said, Clary Chi wrote, uh, don't torture a duckling, New York Ripper, uh, Lamberto Bava's delirium. So this was in a way his most, uh, respectable movie. Cause he also did movies like the infamous cannibal Holocaust. 
Which, yeah, if you can't tell from the title, that's not for the faint of heart. But, yeah, so a very atypical uh, entry into the Jalo subgenre. I'd arguably say that this is probably in my top 10 for the genre. I'd probably put it in my top 100 movies ever. So, yeah, especially if you can find a copy of the Arrow video Blu-ray release, definitely give this one a watch. And next up today is Sergio Martino's The Case of the Scorpion's Tale. Now, the setup for this is that there's this man named Kurt Baumer, if I'm remembering that correctly. Uh, sometimes with the Jalo names, it's hard to remember the side character names. Um, so he dies in a freak plane accident, and his widow in London inherits the uh, small fortune of a life insurance policy, about uh, 400,000 pounds, about a million dollars. But she has to physically travel to Athens uh, to take the money. So she's murdered in Athens after she's collected. And it, it is funny because that takes up like the first 20 minutes of the movie. It It's not to the same extreme as Psycho, but it did kind of remind me of that. Here's the main character. 20 minutes later, she's dead. Now someone else can take her spot. We have our two main characters, uh, Cleo Dupont, who is a French journalist, uh, Peter Lynch, who is the investigator for an insurance company. We have John Stanley from Interpol and the local cop, uh, Inspector Stavros, who are the, who are the official investigators from a legal standpoint. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, they had some... Um, actually international actors. Um, I believe Stavros was played by the Argentine actor Alberto de Mendoza. I could be getting that mixed up with um, Stanley's actor. But George Hilton, who is um, he's originally from Uruguay in South America. He's actually married to the cousin of Sergio Martino, the director. Uh, and we have Anita Sternberg, who I mentioned earlier. Uh, she's originally Swedish. They're both veterans of the genre, actually. Um, Hilton's primarily known for spaghetti westerns, but he and Sternberg both worked with Martino before and after this uh, with some other giallos like Strange of Ice of Mrs. Ward and All the Colors of the Dark. And what's impressive with this one like I commended Bloodstained Butterfly for keeping the locations fresh through editing and not making us, you know, sit through the same sequences again and again with the courtroom testimony. But Scorpion actually managed to have some pretty decent exotic locations for the story. The opening is set in London, like I mentioned, and we have some really wonderful exterior shots in the city. And then we transition to the main story, and we get this wonderful aerial shot of Athens. And plenty of the outdoor shots are uh, local areas in Athens as well, such as the marinas, public squares, public parks, uh, some of the islands, and some of the immediate outskirts of the city. Um, from the commentary with the screenwriter, I'm fairly certain that most of the interiors were just whatever buildings they could get to shoot in um, probably back in Italy, but most of the exterior is um, 
shot on location in whatever city it's supposed to be. Uh, Gastaldi actually talked at length. Uh, Ernesto Gastaldi is the, um, the screenwriter for this one. I should have mentioned it by name. But he talks about how he was asked by the moderator for that commentary track about if that drove up the price at all. And he basically said, no, actually it was uh, easier to just film most of the stuff indoors or in local uh, sections of neighborhoods. And then to just get these, you know, wonderful, you know, big production value shots in foreign cities. He recounts a story where he was actually being pestered by street urchins for most of the day in Paris when they were shooting another movie. But he said that they could be uh, deterred by just handing each of them a few euros. If you're shooting in the south of Italy, you usually have to deal with the mafia, and they ask for a much heavier price. So I thought that was particularly interesting, was that it was actually cheaper in Italy for a while for these uh, relatively low-budget movies to go to just go to a different country with a small crew, shoot a bit there, and then just shoot what you can back here in Italy indoors. Uh, Like I said, as I mentioned, I'm pretty certain that if you were to make a movie like this now, $3 million would probably be a high end for the budget range. I mentioned the distinctive Jalo music before, but I do want to give a special shout-out to this one because there's also... Uh, moments that have sort of Greek folk music incorporated into it. Uh, it also has a bit more of that characteristic dizzying camera work, killer camera shots, pans, tracking shots, snap zooms. And at least in one case, there's some slow motion as someone attempts to flee from the killer. Um, there's no real courtroom aspect because usually in a lot of these jale, uh, when the killer gets unmasked finally, they usually get killed immediately right after. That's usually how it goes. And another thing that's more typical of the genre is that in this case, the main protagonists are a couple of, if you want to be blunt about it, foreign interlopers. Uh, one of them at least does actually have a reason, stated reason to be interested in the case. But usually it's some... Well, that's... That's the typical format, usually. It's not some local who has a personal investment in the plot of this, although one of them does have a reason, but they're just these uh, people that have come from a foreign country for some contrived circumstance, and they're involved in the story in that way. The violence is a lot gorier compared to Bloodstained Butterfly, and it's shot in a more visceral way. There's some great effects to enjoy, even if even if the blood kind of looks a little like strawberry syrup at points. There's an appropriate amount of red herrings to confuse who the killer is. Uh, I should... I don't know if this is much of a spoiler, but I will give a brief explanation of the title because it is actually more relevant than it was in Bloodstained Butterfly. So, come back in about... 15 seconds if you care about spoilers. Okay? Alright, so... The only real relevance that the title has... In... In-universe... Is that one of the clues at one scene... Is a small gold scorpion-shaped cufflink. So that's the explanation for that. 
And yeah, these, um, like I said, the titles are usually, if they're relevant at all, it's only tangentially at some points. In some cases, they're entirely metaphorical. They don't have like any distinctive real meaning or relevance to the story, but hey, they're a snappy sounding title and they sound cool. So that's usually what gets asses in seats. So just some closing thoughts before I move on to the actual end. Um, I do want to give a special shout out to Ernesto Castaldi, who is the, um, like I mentioned, the screenwriter on Case of the Scorpion's Tale. Because um, I'm watching, I was watching the Arrow video release and I went through the special features and there's a visual essay by Troy Howarth, who is a film scholar. He's written a movie, sorry, not a movie. He's written a book called So Deadly, So Perverse, which is essentially a big sprawling guide as to the, as to the giallo subgenre. And I think he makes a pretty convincing case here. Now, I don't really put, put much stock in auteur theory, which basically ascribes the director, in most cases, the um, sole credit for the imagery of the movie. I think that's a lot more true for some than others. So I take it with a metric Carthage of salt, as my history professor liked to say. Uh, you know, there's definitely, like, your Hitchcocks, your Carpenters, your Argentos or Martinos even, where there's definitely a... You can definitely tell that they've put their creative stamp on the movie. But, you know, even them, you can't ascribe them sole credit for the way the movie turns out. But he makes a pretty good case that Gastaldi, especially given the sheer volume of screenplays that he's written, is probably a good case of an auteur coming from the screenwriter aspect of it. Um, especially because, like, you know, a lot of directors, especially the ones that usually get described as auteurs, they're, they usually start out as screenwriters themselves. But Gasaldi is very rigorous in the story's logic, and he always tries to set everything up so that there's an appropriate amount of misdirection, so you're basically guessing right up until the last, like, at most ten minutes of the movie. And he does make a good point that, like, it's a shame that uh, screenwriters usually get passed over when talking about auteur theory because they're, in architectural terms, they're the guys making the blueprint. Uh, you know, they're the ones giving the director the material to work with. And it's a shame that, like directors or even the occasional producers like Val Luton or David O. Selznick, they usually are the ones getting described as auteurs and the, you know, the screenwriters usually get shafted, even though they're the ones making the meat of the story. Uh, Gastaldi's also written a lot of other giallos for Martino especially. He also did uh, Torso, uh, the two ones that I mentioned earlier, All the Colors of the Dark, Strange Vice of Mrs. Ward, um, Suspicious Death of a Minor, which is also a really good one. But he also did Luciano Ercoli's Death Walks on High Heels. And if you're wondering, yes, I, I have in fact seen pretty much all the ones I just mentioned. But yeah, he's a great screenwriter from all the ones I've seen him from. 
I think he deserves a lot more praise than he gets. But moving on. Um, now I will say what unites the two, as I mentioned with Gestaldi, is that the plots are very, very logically structured. And they actually do hold up to scrutiny on repeated viewings if you're paying attention. A lot of Jolly actually do that as well, but as I said earlier, part of the rewatch value for some of the Jalo genre is that they you don't know what the fuck is going on the first time. Actually, on the commentary tract, Alan Jones, he mentions that he's seen different cuts of this movie. The one that Arrow has is the most complete. And there's a scene where after, after the opening credits... We get a short snippet of each um, each character and their name. Occasionally we get um, their relationship to another character, which was a very like old-fashioned, like 30s murder mystery kind of thing. But it generally helps. But you get the opening credits, you get that little intro, and then you get the scene where there's the murder in the park. But in some prints, it just cuts right to the murder in the park. So it's very, very confusing, I'd imagine. So, yeah, these two don't sidestep the logic of the story in favor of shock value. They have some decent shocks, but it still makes sense when you look back on it. And Butterfly especially is not typical Jalo because it doesn't just plod from one murder set piece to another. Um... Two of them are glossed over in seconds, and there's only, like, five total. Um, You know, they're definitely not free from plot contrivance, but the contrivances don't drive the story down. Uh, So, yeah, if you want a more classical Jalo, I'd say, for now, skip Bloodstained Butterfly, but it's atypical in a good way of the genre. So give it a watch eventually. And afterwards, if you get the Arrow Video Blu-ray release, listen to the commentary track with Alan Jones and Kim Newman discussing it, because in addition to being insightful, the two are just fucking hilarious. I I actually saw both of them on a documentary a long time ago, and I recognized their voices immediately. And, yeah, (laughs) actually, come to think of it, there's one more thing Kim Newman said, is that if there's one thing that unites a lot of Jali, it's basically rich people suck. <laughs> like very few of these characters are any a lot of these like scummy, backbiting, troubled characters in these Jalo movies are usually self entitled upper class people. Poor characters are almost never featured, and if they are, they're usually either rich people that have lost their fortunes or they're, you know, struggling creative types, you know the musician that's trying to make it big. It's a nice little reflection of the counterculture and the sort of social and political unrest in Italy in the 60s and 70s. I mean, to give some scale, um, this was the same... Well, both of these movies were made in the year that Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas takes place, uh, 1971. And there is a funny scene in Butterfly where Giorgio, our, you know pianist he's visited by his rich father that he doesn't get on with and the father just goes into these into this apartment that used to be the old servants quarters and he's like oh god 
son, how can you live like this? And then the lights come on and it's like this luxurious apartment that wouldn't look out of place in like a, you know, 90s sitcom. He's got like these nice gothic decor everywhere. He's got this big bed. He's got his grand piano in there. I mean, it's kind of funny seeing the like this rich old guy trying to look outside the bubble and also just the like generational tension. So, yeah, that's my thoughts on these two movies in particular. Um, Like I said, there's no shortage of good Jalo out there. A lot of them are kind of guilty pleasures, honestly, but that's why I like them. I kind of have the same. They're like slashers, but more stylish. And what I said about Helmuth Berger, he was in these big budget art films like Ludwig and The Damned by Lucino Visconti. Um, he had a very small role in Godfather 3, but he was also in Massimo Dallamano's Dorian Gray, which was a nice little trashy bit of low-budget art, and he was in more than a few Jalo movies. And I think he's basically Jalo with microcosm that I like. It's the perfect blend of art house and grindhouse, and I think that's probably the best way I can describe it. So thank you for joining me tonight. I'll be signing off. Uh, As usual, dispatch episodes will be coming out when they come out. I have a loose plan for the next few months that I'm going to post on Twitter. And that's basically it. I'm going to try to keep to that as much as possible. I'm thinking May 27th is what I'm going to aim for. What I'm going to do is a nice little triple or quadruple feature on four movies, three or four movies that I consider to be the perfect definition of so bad they're good movies. Plan 9 from Outer Space, Troll 2, The Room, and possibly, if I can fit it in, Who Killed Captain Alex? Thank you. Good night. Signing off. Bye.